Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. And you knew where you were Girls were girls and men were men. Mister, we could use a man like Raymond like Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare states. Everybody pulled his weight. G.R. Old LaSalle ran great. Those were the days. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Vina with more insights and strategy. Today is May 15th, 2019. Um, you probably heard a different musical intro uh, to, to today's podcast. I'm not using that inspirational modern music theme that we typically use in our podcast. I was playing the theme song from All in the Family that uh, I'm sure all of you know, you know, even, if you ha- even though the show hasn't been on the air in 25 years, but it's a very popular song. And then the reason why I, I played that is that today's going to be a fun podcast. I've got a few folks on the line. All of us, we know probably too much about each other. But I think it'll be an insightful call about um, some of the things that we did early in our career when we worked at Compact. Um, my God, now it's probably 15, 20 years ago, uh, if you go back that far. So on the line, I've got uh, Brian Ridge, uh, who has had an illustrious career, um, not just at Compact, but in several different jobs afterward. I've got Ed Ellett, who I work closely with. Um, uh, we were actually... Um, um, uh, comrades in arms while we were managing uh, different parts of uh, Compact's desktop and notebook um, commercial business. And I've got another person on the line who you know very well because I work with him today closely, Will Townsend, who did a number of things at Compact um, back in the day. So with that introduction, uh, Brian, once you started off, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing right now? Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, Brian Ridge. Um my favorite time in my career uh, was around these three gentlemen and a bunch of other people at the top floor of a Rankin Road uh, compact building. So um, those are uh, some of my most enjoyable days career-wise. After uh, doing that, I moved on to sales management and some other things, uh, workstation and thin client business uh, management at Compact. I retired, and uh, I have to say retirement was blissful. And then another young man on this call, Ed Ellett, dragged me out of retirement to work for a uh, private pro-AV company where I currently uh, continue to uh, 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 work diligently for. Now, now, if you were to see uh, Brian's face, Brian looks like he's about 17 years old still. So I can't, it sounds like you retired when you were 14. So kudos <laughs> to you, Brian, for doing that. So Ed, so turning over the, uh, the mic to Ed for a bit, Mike, uh, um, uh, Ed, please give us an introduction of uh, what you've been doing. Well, good morning, Mark, and it's really good to hear everyone's voice. Uh, I feel like uh, we should kick this call off by, uh, you know, reviewing sales out and channel inventory uh, for last week. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, of course, I spent a, a number of years at Compact and met some of the most um, – uh, it was a great company, and it had a great position in the market. It made a big impact, but probably the biggest memories of all are all the people that, uh, that worked at Compact, not just the uh, – this is a small subset of them on the call here. Obviously, the best that Compact had, but there were a lot of other good people that uh, worked there well and have, you know, remained uh, long-term friends uh, since I left uh, 
uh, compact. I actually moved out of the industry, went into the uh, unified communications world at Polycom for a number of years, and then most recently uh, was the CEO of a private equity company of, of a small company called Vadio, which is in the pro EV industry. And mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple of years, I've been on a sabbatical and uh, currently looking around to see what I'm going to get back into here in the near future. You know, and you know, and you know, and you bring up a number of uh, a very good point because when I speak to people who work for Compaq, um, and a lot, and you know, what's really remarkable is that so many people really moved on to, you know, very exciting things, you know, bigger and bigger jobs, you know, um, uh, after their tenure at Compaq. But what I hear consistently from people is that their tenures at Compaq were really the most, uh, the happiest times of their peer, of their careers. You know, and uh, and I think it was a, a function of working with such talented people, and uh, so that's a very common theme. You know, it, it was, I, I feel I feel personally myself. You know, I've kind of used the word I used used to describe it as the the Camelot uh, part of my career because it was a, it was a period that when I, when it, and it was a Broadway show. Yes, I get that, but uh, it was a period when like anything was possible. You know, we had leadership that was being was being very aggressive as we got into the consumer space, where I spent a lot of time with. Um, you know, obviously they had a dominating position. We'll talk a bit about that during the call in the commercial PC side. Um, and it was just a fun period because we were, we were meeting with, uh, we, we worked with such incredibly talented people. But, uh, but let me not forget uh, Will Townsend. So, Will, you've been doing a lot of fun stuff with me at More Insights and Strategy. But uh, talk to us a little bit about what you did at Compaq back in the day. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll... I'll rewind a little bit and I'll agree with with Ed and, and Brian and, and Mark with you as well I mean compact you know it was definitely the highlight of my career and it was really the quality of people in the work that we were doing there that was really just uh, you know, engaging I actually had met Ed at a startup you know prior to joining his team and working on the commercial desktop um, you know team and, and helping drive you know desk pros prolific I can get that out in <laughs> in two sentences there and uh, uh, you know and just you know again just you know sort of really enjoy that and then left and then I ended up coming back and doing consumer desktops as well for Brett Falk another another character that we all know and love so mm -hmm. yeah so it's it's fun to be on the call and to be talking about uh, the, the good old days with compact well, and I want to go back to something that Brian said because one of the most um, entertaining stories, and we should bring up a lot of entertaining stories because there were many of them at, at Compaq, was, you know, while we were there, Compaq was exploding at an unbelievable clip. I mean, the, and we actually outgrew the, uh, the Conroe campus where Compaq has this wonderful campus, which, by the way, is no more, but that's a, that's a different story. But, you know, Compaq had um, a number of different buildings that were brand new that were linked via vis-a-vis -a, -vis a spine that you could walk through the 11 or 12 buildings without ever having to go outside and you know suffer the humidity that was um, very common in Houston <laughs> but we actually but we actually outgrew that campus and uh, we had to move the entire North America marketing group to a building uh, we called it Rankin Road because it was on this road about I don't know it was 10 15 miles away from the main campus and it wasn't a bad building but in, in compact actually spent quite a bit of money retrofitting it but it didn't have you know a lot of there were a lot of people weren't crazy about it because we were kind of moving away from the mothership and when I remember that was most entertaining probably the greatest senior executive that I ever worked for and Ed, I think you'd agree with this you all agree with this was a guy by the name of Ross Cooley. And Ross was a, um, 
a long time. He was one of the original uh, compact employees that essentially built the entire re uh, retail, not retail, but um, he did do that. But uh, the VAR and the reseller business at, at Compact. And I will never forget this. I, I'm sure you guys were there at this big town hall meeting where Ross was trying to sell the entire employee group, which had to be uh, like six, seven, eight hundred people, if I remember at the time, on why we have to move to Rankin Road. And, and Ross was such a terrific guy. He pulled up a slide because he kind of tried to preempt the issue. He basically said, no, listen, guys, I know you have a, uh, uh, you're probably going to have a problem moving to this campus. So let me show you a picture of our new building. And he unveiled a slide of a picture of like a dilapidated house that was about to explode. And uh, I thought that was probably <laughs> the most entertaining way of kind of disarming everybody and uh no, that, and I, you know, again, everything worked out for the best, and we had a lot of fun. But uh, that was just one of the um, probably the more G-rated stories I could probably talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Brian, I, Brian, I'm, and speaking about G-rated stories, uh, Brian, what, do you have a, a memorable story that you'd like to relate? Hmm. Uh, G-rated is the challenge uh, with you, Mark. But I think I could probably pull something. I'll, I'll remember this, and we're thinking fondly back uh, on those. Uh, on those days, and I, I do, uh, uh, you know, I guess with a little bit of rose-colored glasses, do look at it. I remember uh, one day walking or being in the elevator with Ed and saying, man, just as things are going so well, we'd gained share, uh, we'd hired a lot of good people, worked with uh, the people on this call and a lot of other people that we just enjoyed working with, and it was kind of like a pinch-me kind of conversation, yeah. and uh, Ed's perspective of being a... a, a a little wiser, slightly, you know, a couple of years to my age, said, you know, this it won't last forever. Mm -hmm. And then about uh, probably a year and a half, two years later, the conversation we had was last person uh, out needs to turn off the lights. So things did change uh, as they do. Uh, as so I look back at Compaq, I, I, I regret some things uh, that we should have fought for greater. Uh, but I would tell you the people that did uh, house that building for Ross Cooley, I think really were super effective at, at doing their jobs. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, there was a McDonald's right around the corner from that yep. Rankin Road location. That's and right. uh, it's a true story. If you, my last name is Ridge. If you would have driven down there in the the late nineties and said, I want to make Ridge that what that you would get a number three, <laughs> supersize, no one used it with a Coke. Uh, so <laughs> we frequent that quite a lot. And also I remember that there, uh, their shake machine was on occasion not working. And there was another person we worked with, uh, uh, Linda, who, when that happened, you did not want to be anywhere near her because she would let the manager at the McDonald's know exactly how she felt about denying her a chocolate shake. Well, that's, that, that's entertaining. That's entertaining. Um, Ed, yeah. what's your, a memorable story from you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll recommend to, to uh, I'm not sure what all we're going to talk about, so I don't want to give everything away here in one shot, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the memorable story, I guess, is uh, for me was uh, as we went into uh, early 98, um, we were faced with a serious uh, issue that the reasons that it became true is not really important, but at the end of the day, uh, we had a we had about 15 weeks of inventory in the channel in North America for desktops, mm -hmm. and we need and we needed to bring that down um, to a four to six week level in the June timeframe. While we also introduced a brand new product line in the mid in the mid in the middle of all that, and so uh, Brian and I and a number of other people uh, sat down and. 
thought about that and we came up with a plan that almost nobody in the company thought could happen. Uh, especially the regional sales leaders, they especially didn't like my plan too much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the idea was the, the idea was we were going to uh, we we're going to increase sales, you know, thirty to forty percent, and uh, nobody thought it would could happen. And it turns out they were right. In the first half of the year, sales went to fifty percent, and mm-hmm. so uh, in the second half of the year, it slowed down, giving us a year over year forty percent growth. Nobody thought that could happen. And it was a um, it was a coordinated effort of of uh, skew definition, pricing strategies, advertising uh, for the year, and channel promotional programs were all coordinated. And uh, it was a it was a fun time of which uh, we all saw the power of uh, planning and uh, mm-hmm. working together and pulling the sales team together. So it was a lot of fun. Right. And uh, as Brian mentioned. Uh, earlier, uh, throughout that period, it wasn't uncommon uh, to just walk around and uh, grab the team and uh, head over to McDonald's and uh, buy everybody whatever it is they wanted, an ice cream or a burger or whatever that was. And it was true that uh, after we went over there about four times in a row and the shake machine wasn't working, uh, uh, Linda would go, as we would say, she was a, a little bit frustrated with the uh, McDonald's management. <laughs> and, and, it, and it truly scarred her for life because even to this day uh if she goes to mcdonald's and the shake machine doesn't work uh you know she has to take some medication oh wow <laughs> well but you know what not not to really you know to um uh to over exaggerate you know what you've been talking about uh, ed is that the numbers that we were moving back then especially on the desktop side, were staggering numbers. I mean, uh, what I, and I say this honestly, Brian, because I haven't seen you in, I haven't seen you in years physically, but um, I remember you walking to my office and says, you know what, do you not realize that last week uh, we did sales out of 43, well, I'll make a number of 43,000 Despro XXXs. He would, you'd wrap a number around it and you said, you know, by the way, that's bigger than the capacity of Fenway Park. You know, you would, you would put it into a, and I, and knowing you, you probably had a chart. You know, every week, you know, we had a, when we had sales out that we, that, w- that would exceed a major league ballpark, you would check that off. But uh, the numbers were truly staggering, and um, you know, we might be using some phrases on the line, by the way, that may, not everyone may understand. And you know, when back in those days, there was something called sales in, where you would sell units to the channel to a dis- to a distributor, and then of course, the most important thing would be sales out. Because at the end of the day, sales out would be the uh, the um, the purchase that a, a customer would take on, and we would measure things both uh, carefully. And the, and the volumes, to your point, Ed, were so large that if you didn't put together these highly integrated marketing plans together, um, and then convince, of course, salespeople who never like to see big numbers, not to, to not to go after salespeople, but um, you know the the phrase sandbag comes to mind with a lot of the salespeople I knew. But yeah. you know, move, moving sure. big numbers like that. That was not a that was not a trivial undertaking. I mean, it was highly complex. And by the way, you know, the North America market, you know, set the tone for the rest of the world. I mean, it was. I, if I recall, guys, wasn't North America over fifty percent of the revenue? It's got Probably, it had to be. Yeah. You had to it was. Be back then. It was fifty percent of the revenue for the commercial side. Right. Right. Yeah. The uh, and just so you can appreciate it, um, the the Despro was a. Was somewhere between a Fortune 200 and a Fortune 300 company, all by itself, all by itself, just the North America sales, not counting the uh, the worldwide sales. Just the North mm-hmm. America sales alone made it a, a Fortune 250 or so 
company. Uh, company. Yes. Yep. So it was a it was a large force. So, Will, I'm sure you've had now time to think about it while we've been chatting over here. What is your <laughs> what is your fond what is your fondest compact story? I got to tell you, it's, it's got to be the road shows that we did, and and watching you know Brian, you know, do um, the the Dust Pro Jeopardy game. Remember that, oh, Brian? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Oh my God, that was so much fun, and just just traveling. You know, with you know, with Brian's team and the channel folks, and then you know, I was working on product management and working on more mundane things like nomenclature changes. You know, from Despro two four and six thousand to EN and EP, but um, but definitely that's one of my fondest memories. You know, going on these road shows with the team, visiting resellers, educating them, and then just having you know our resident game show host, Mr. Brian Ridge, you know, kind of lead the Jeopardy. <laughs> Well, and, and let me say, too, is that you know, while Brian was doing his um, best impersonation of Alex Trebek, um, the, um, you, know, one, you know, I oversaw the Armada business, which was, was at the time was Compaq's um, corporate um, uh, notebook business. And I, I always thought it was kind of entertaining that the brand was called Armada because any, any person who had an Armada back in the mid-90s knew that the, the, um, the similarities between the Spanish Armada and the, the Armada <laughs> notebooks were... <laughs> would, people would remind me of that all the time. And, that, and what I'm really saying was that we had a lot of quality issues. Um, and it, it went, you know, at the end of the day, the, the business was growing rapidly. We had a product group that was re- working very hard to fix those because we were trying to be very aggressive and... You know, p- people don't remember this, but we would be selling these three, four, five thousand uh, dollar notebook computers with a very elaborate docking mechanism. Sometimes the docking mechanism was was twice the sor- size of the um, uh, the uh, the the, uh, the notebook itself. But but what I do finally remember, though, and Ed, you'll remember this, is that you know we lost money the first year that I was there because of all these commercial, all these. Um, uh, quality problems, but in the sh- uh, in the span of one year, you know, my proudest moment we, we was able to, we were able to turn that around and actually flip it from a twenty five million dollar loss. If I re- I think I remember these numbers, to a twenty five million dollar positive number through a variety of different programs, a lot of attention on 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 customer service and things like that. And it just goes to show you, you know, that when you pull to get, you know, when you have a lot of talented people, anything is possible. You know, absolutely. Turning yeah. things around, but but here's a question I want to ask all of you because you've all had wonderful jobs, you know, uh, following your your uh, tenure at, at Compact. Give me an idea, Ed, of the one or two lessons that you pulled away from your time at Compact and how it's affected you and applied to you in jobs that you've had over the last few years. Because I, I hear that all the time too that you know that that, that their people's tenures at Compact were so powerful it really impacted them when they went to, on to future jobs. Yeah, and uh, first of all, just a quick comment on what you were just talking about there. The the engineering organization at uh, a compact was you know was top notch, and the mm-hmm. uh, the portable and the mobile products. Portable we called them back then. Now we call them notebooks and yeah and and mobile. But uh, it was a top notch organization. They did have a few quality problems, and I always uh, I, I always had a deep sympathy for you as it relates <laughs> to. Uh, uh, basically going from one Fortune uh, 500 company to another, and uh, you know taking a beating for an hour while they uh, while they all yelled at you. And then I remember being at the sales meeting where we had the pie throwing contest, where we had the desktop guy, me and you, the notebook yep. guy, and, and then yep. the, uh, uh, the the options guy. I can't, what was his name? Uh, oh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I can't remember. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. But anyway, every salesperson that came up there 
by the, by the end of the hour, me and the other guy didn't have any pie on our face, and poor Mark had like every single pie that, uh, <laughs> that they could throw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I submitted, I submitted a very, very uh, heavy um, dry cleaning tab on my expense report uh, that week. I recall. <laughs> yes, I did. But but I would like to get back to the, some of the yeah, lessons you lessons, pulled away. Lessons learned. Yeah, lessons, lessons learned. learned. Well, I mean, lessons learned for me was. Uh, at least for me, it was my first time to actually work in the field. Uh, you know, I've been a product group guy for uh, my entire career up to that point. So, so working in the field and working with the sales teams and uh, seeing the tight coordination that goes on between field marketing and field sales, you know, I carried that with me uh, throughout the rest of my career. I think everywhere I've been since, the sales teams in the companies would say that, you know, I was a great ally and a big advocate for them. Uh, because I think that oftentimes we made, you know, we joked a little earlier about the sales team didn't want their, uh, didn't like the high sales out there, but we, we would all behave that way if our compensation is tightly uh, right. coupled to, to that. So that's what drives that behavior. But salespeople uh, is certainly at Compact, the, the, the five regional vice presidents and a lot of their key direct reports, they were responsible for carrying the company through a lot of that quality issues that you were dealing with in terms of smoothing over the uh, customer's feathers. And so I, right. I took I took that lesson with me, you know, everywhere I've been since. So right. um, that would be my comment. Well, what about your, um, what would you say what, what, um, in terms of uh, things that, you know, you took from your compact tenure into your future, future jobs that you've had? Yeah, well, I mean, one, you know, the ability to be able to manage, you know, a team of professional product marketers, that was the first opportunity that I had at, at Compaq. You know, the other was I had come from Dell. I'd started my career at Dell in 91, had left and had met Ed at Cyrix, and that's how we connected and then followed Ed to Compaq. Compaq gave me that opportunity to really get exposed to the channel and understand the value of the channel, the scale of the channel how you market within the channel. I learned a lot from Brian as well, as he led a lot of those uh, evangelism efforts in the channel and really took that forward into my career and um, and have, you know, so, you know after I had left, um, participated in a few startups, uh, per, you know, participated in, with a few companies where I led channel marketing and channel sales activities. So really when I look back, you know, I, I, I have very fond memories of, of all of those experiences, but just gaining that, that insight, that knowledge around around channel and and how the channel can really scale and you know uh you know and you know grow companies has been a tremendous learning um and skill that i've been able to put into my bag of tricks well and you know what's interesting about that and i, I know that um brian will have um some colorful comments on this but you know the, the the interesting thing that's happened in the technology space over the last 25 years 30 years is that there has been this kind of conceit that you know, Amazon's had so much success that everything has to be direct and you don't need retailers, you don't need resellers, you don't need a channel. And that really hasn't changed. In fact, you know, the, um, in many businesses, certainly in the technology space, the channel still plays a very, very important oh, role. Yeah. It, ha it hasn't gone away. And, um, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that's something that even today's technology marketeers should have an appreciation for it because it's just this obsession with Amazon, you know, that, you know, I can bypass the channel, the channel's on an ally to, to, to help me sell, um, to sell something. And the channel does have a value proposition. So I guess, Brian, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's a topic uh, near and dear to my heart for almost my <laughs> whole career. So I could make a 
uh, 10 podcast series that no one listened to just about that. <laughs> uh, e-commerce uh, and uh, its benefits and how it, uh, you know, when you talk about more value products and how you need to have either you, someone has to create demand for your product. Uh, fulfillment is another game there. Uh, certainly uh, at, at, Compaq, HB, and then my current uh, job, I, I have a great appreciation for um, a, a partner model, especially where it re it's, it's simply required. Um, uh, and frankly, one thing that I, I would take away as a lesson that we greatly learned, or I learned at uh, Compaq, was we, the role that, that we had, Mark and, and Ed really driving, was managing a lot of dials. And... Mm -hmm. um, most corporations, I think, you know, have some degree of incompetence, but we showed a great degree of competence of actually managing those dials. In other words, we had to manage products that were both pretty high value. In other words, weren't very price elastic uh, and some that were very price elastic, like a monitor where pricing would, would uh, generate demand uh, very quickly. Uh, we had direct salespeople who wanted to discount product to their end user customers. We did through distribution. We sold through uh, partners. We sold directly to partners foregoing distribution in some instances. We had online resellers. We had e-commerce e people. And all of that boils down to, and you know, some partners are very large and some partners are very small. Uh, managing that uh, and getting it working uh, is a tremendous uh, uh, benefit uh, to the company. Screwing up one of those dials and messing it up where distribution no longer wants to sell your product or a partner doesn't want you to sell your product or e-commerce is no longer motivated. Uh, suddenly brings things to, you know, puts a lot of grit in your gear, gears. Um, so uh, I think as I look back working with, with you guys and the ability just to, to learn to see the value and how a large engine operates efficiently and frankly on occasion where, where uh, we did get some, some sand in the grit, how important it was to fix it. Uh, and I think most companies, if they just glow about direct, if you're selling a commodity product that already has a lot of demand, um, that fulfillment is your primary issue, then that, you know, more, more, more to you. Uh, yeah. But protecting uh, your brand, protecting the margin for whoever uh, is selling your product, internal and external, is not a nice to have. It's a must to have if you want to be a long, uh, a long ride uh, for, for your for your solutions. Yes. Well. So in the couple of minutes that we have left on the podcast, um, let's just talk, you know, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, all of you, uh, one question, and that is, you know, you know, if you could have changed one thing you did at Compaq, or you maybe I'll broaden it a bit, and you wish Compaq had done a bit differently, because I think, well, you know, we all kind of shed a tear, more than a few tears, again, uh, I, I believe many of us, when the acquisition happened. Um, and by the way, not to say the no, it's not to say the acquisition. Not to say the HP acquisition. We have a, I have a lot of friends at HP, and it, it turned out to be a wonderful thing. You know, twenty years, I guess, going forward. But I think it's all fair to say that a lot of us had pride, and a lot of us, I think, we all had pride in terms of what we accomplished at Compaq. You know, what thing would you have liked to see the company have done differently? You know, maybe toward the end. Um, Ed, I know that's a that's a loaded question, but let me uh, <laughs> tee that one up for you. Okay. Well, first, I wasn't there for the uh, for the uh, HP acquisition. I think the the decline started for the most part um, shortly after uh, Eckerd left, and mm -hmm. for the most part, uh, that's not to be a negative comment about anybody who led the company after that. I just think that the company went into a to a state of disarray. Right. And, and when I look back at it, um, 
uh, I would not be as, you know, I don't want to, I would certainly not want anyone to think that a single person in North America could have somehow solved that. But I, but I do think that when I look back at it, that I could have put a lot more effort into communicating with Ben Rosen and others directly, and they would have listened to some of the things that were going on. But it's also true that the company just went into something like the Good to Great uh, book points out many examples. Uh, there was nothing externally that was causing compact problems. It was all internally, yep. and uh, so it was. It was all within the. It was all within the our control, and uh, for one reason or another, we didn't. Uh, we didn't, and I'm not sure that I think any one of us potentially, you know, wishes now that we'd have put a little more effort into uh, trying to, uh, you know, prevent that from happening. No, and uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So, Brian, other than um Maybe choosing a different fast food venue near the Rankin Road uh, facility, so you so you so you wouldn't piss off the um, the general manager of that that particular McDonald's. What would you have liked to see the company do a bit differently, if anything? Uh, yeah, I think it largely aligns to what Ed said. Um, even though you know we did, we did some unnatural events, we you know Ed was open and talked about how we ended one year with a a, a great deal of uh, inventory in the channel that hurt profitability. We were very proud of the fact that we drove sales and we did it under the budget we earmarked. But in reality, when you look back on it, uh, that wasn't a smart thing to do. But that was all, like Ed said, that's self-inflicted. We, we didn't need to put that uh, inventory in the channel. And frankly, um, uh, it, it was somewhat of a forced event. I think that gave a fixation to some people that direct was the answer and that profitability of the, the model we had. And so there was a lot of move to change uh, uh, really the core competency of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, uh, it's easy for me to say in hindsight, and perhaps I, uh, uh, I didn't give that strategy as much credit as I should have, but I felt uh, we just needed to do better block and tackling and not, you know, repeat mistakes we made before and not redefine the way our go-to-market was. Uh, and that seemed to be the executive management uh, uh, kind of drive after after Eckerd left, and that was disappointing. And frankly, a lot of the reason why eventually uh, it, what we were doing was not you know wasn't as fun. It wasn't as successful. We all moved on to do other stuff. Right. Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know. Um, so, uh, a last question for you, Will. Your thoughts? Yeah, I know. I'll echo both, you know, what Brian and, and Ed said. I, I kind of felt kind of a couple of things, and I don't recall if this was, you know, before Eckerd or after Eckerd's departure, but, you know, sort of like, you know, Brian was mentioning sort of, you know, the whole the whole alphabet soup of, you know, channel configuration programs, CCP and all of that, if you guys, I'm sure you recall all of that. It just, it created a lot of confusion. I felt like we were sort of moving outside of our, out of our core competency and sort of giving up and alienating the channel partners and of course those decisions were well above my pay grade and the other observation i have you know th there were successful acquisitions you know um at the company you know with tandem but then you know we got into the the, the digital acquisition and right, yeah. that was just a mm -hmm. culture clash i remember and then it just seemed like you know it was sort of acquisition for the sake of acquisition and had we focused on kind of our core competency and what we were really good at maybe things would have been different maybe you know, there wouldn't have been, you know, they come together, you know, with, with HP, you know, and, and Carly and all of that. Right. Uh, but, hey, you know what? You know, it's hindsight's twenty twenty, like you said, Mark. But, um, but again, you know, my memories and the experiences I had there and the skills that I put in the bag of tricks, you know, far outweigh, you know, sort of any of that. Right. And think very fondly about my time uh, at Compact. Yeah. Well, I mean, well. 
Yeah, well, well said. I mean, the only thing I would, would say, and I agree with all three, all three of you violently, is that um, I think the, the, the big lesson for me was that Compact toward the end was so afraid of the direct model, almost obsessed with it, that it, it put them into a state of paralysis, and they couldn't come to, they couldn't come to grips with the fact that you can you can have both a successful channel reseller, retailer distribution model and a direct model at the same time, and uh, they just couldn't they couldn't rationalize and reconcile both those two things, and uh, those kind of things happen. And with the uh, you know the, the history book the history books will will. Um, We'll write, write that story. So, anyway, um, thanks to all three of you uh, hey, for participating. Yes, go ahead, Ed. I just wanted to make uh, one comment. Given today's sure. world uh, versus our world then, 20 years ago, you know, today uh, there's a lot of push and a lot of talk as it relates to uh, male-female representation in management uh, in in uh, corporate America. And mm -hmm. I just wanted to point out that this was 20 years ago. And um, in my opinion, there were, in a, there were a number of very impressive women who worked at Compact, Lynn Schleimeyer being one of them, LaVon right. Mullet being another, Mary McDowell, right. Jerry mm -hmm. Calloway, Karen Bucko. We could just go down the list. Yep. Uh, and I, was, I just thought that, at least in my mind, in those days, uh, I felt like there was uh, you know, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today was already well on its way. Uh, to self-correcting itself in the compact days, and that was over 20 years ago. I'm not sure if the if the ladies would agree with that, but that was my, <laughs> that was my observation during that time. And uh, and learn and I enjoyed uh, you know really didn't really even I don't know I don't recall any of us having any conversations about who should be in charge or not charge on on a, on, a, on that kind of a dimension. It was just who was who was the best at doing the job, and we all had respect for each other accordingly. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there was a whole host of very, very capable um, female executives that we and and and, and even non-executives that we all work for. And I, you know, you don't. It's funny. You don't even think about it. We just took it for granted because if if someone was the best person to do the job, and they happened to be a female, I mean, I don't think anybody would have had any issue with that. And to your point, Ed, we worked with with some very, very strong um, uh, women. During that uh, during that period, and I, I appreciate you reminding me and uh, the audience of that fact. But uh, anyway, that's all the time we have. Um, the last thing I'm going to do to leave leave um, Brian with was a trivia question, because Brian is the king of trivia. Who was the composer of the theme song from All in the Family? Brian, do you know uh, that? Um, I'm going to. Um, can I go to the Google? Uh, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> I was I'll just. Archie Bunker. No, it wasn't Archie Bunker. It was. It was not Carol O'Connor. Uh, what a brilliant show, by the way. Way ahead of its time. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for that editorial. Yeah, but, we got to sign off. But it was, believe it or not, it was Charles Strauss who wrote "Bye Bye Birdie" and Annie. And I, I think I'm the only person in all of California that knows the answer to that question. Uh, the a, entire planet, probably. Probably the entire planet, exactly. So. Have you seen Kelsey Grammer's version of La Mancha yet, sir? Yes, and I've written a review about it. In fact, if you go onto my LinkedIn profile, I saw that while I was in London a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> All right, Shocking. We're not going to get into a whole Broadway uh, musical um, um, finale discussion. But anyway, guys, thanks for calling in, taking time out of your busy calendar. Thanks to the entire more insights and strategy audience for listening in on today's very entertaining um, podcast. Please follow more insights and strategy on our usual social media suspects. 
LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And until next time, have a great week.